0: Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. So I am here today with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, hashtag basketball draft expert, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, Nick, I'm good. The NBA playoffs are back underway. It's incredible having fans back in the stadium. I have to eat a lot of crow on Dylan Brooks and the Miami Heat are frauds.
0: Ah, oh, goodness. The Miami Heat were one of my power rankings teams this season, so I'm not going to call them frauds right off the top, but I'll I'll let frauds. you have that one. Yeah, okay. I'll let you have that <laughs> one at least for, you know, the next the next couple of days after that 34-point drubbing at the hands of the Milwaukee Bucks. But we are not here today to talk about the terrible playoff run of the Miami Heat. We are here today to talk draft and We have a very interesting episode today. Tyler and I are going to talk about our draft philosophy. So the kinds of things we look at in evaluating prospects and how we value age versus potential production for younger players. So let's start off right at the top with very general sort of overall likes and dislikes. So what are the player archetypes that you tend to overvalue in terms of draft? Maybe not overvalue, but I guess the kinds of prospects that you tend to gravitate towards, maybe more than sort of the average draft evaluator.
1: So, guys that I, over the last four or five years of doing this, the guys that I've realized that I always end up high, having higher than other people are guys who are like surefire role players, where They may not have, you know, the potential ceiling of some other prospects, uh, but they project as just really good starters. And I always tend to rank those guys a lot higher than others because I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe it's because I I struggle with really projecting or believing in some of these guys' absurdly high ceilings. But it's guys who will contribute to winning basketball. Maybe not be a star, but They'll play good offense. They can or play good defense. They can shoot. They can pass. They can do a little bit of everything. And they're just really versatile. So just like those kind of like well-rounded role players are guys that I, I've, I've kind of noticed myself ranking a lot higher than most people over the last few years.
0: So that's a discussion point that I think ties in pretty closely with age in terms of evaluating prospects, which we'll get into later in the podcast. I think that's definitely a player archetype that I tend to like as well. Players that I'm confident will be able to be at least something at the NBA level. But really the player archetype that I tend to overvalue the most is players who can score efficiently. You know, there are quite a few players, both at the college level and at the NBA level, where if you let them take 25 shots a game, you know, they can put up 20 points, but that's not something that I think is contributing positively to your team. So I tend to, I think, overvalue three-point shooting in general, just because I think that if you can shoot the three-pointer at a high level and you're not an absolute tire fire on the defensive end, I think there's a place for you in the NBA, so I think I tend to overvalue pure shooters more than sort of the average draftable player.
1: I I don't think that's necessarily a a bad thing either, especially with how expanding NBA offenses are becoming every year. I mean, we're, we're seeing more and more three point shooting and, you know, guys like Duncan Robinson, who 10 years ago would, you know, they, they just wouldn't have had a spot in the league are now, you know, you look at him and Joe Harris and Thomas Burton's guys like that, they're now making 20 plus million a year. So I, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad overvalue. Um, but I, I do think with those guys, a lot of the time context and coaching philosophy and team philosophy are, are really, really important for those guys to, you know, hit, hit those high levels of a uh, Duncan Robinson, Joe Harris, et cetera.
0: So that's sort of on the positive side. And now let's talk about some player archetypes that we tend to undervalue, slash, player archetypes that we don't rate as highly as maybe the average person. And the obvious one for me that I've sort of touched on at various points throughout the podcast, namely with how lowly I think of Josh Christopher, who's been a repeated punching bag for me on this podcast. But as I Said, sort of with the shooting thing, something that I really don't tend to value as much is players who put up a ton of points when they're getting a ton of shots. You know, the kinds of players who are maybe inefficient mid range scorers or just chucker archetypes. Those are the kinds of players where I think that. You know, shot creation is a very important skill at the NBA level, obviously, but I think that it's overvalued by most people in the sense that it's actually easier than people think it is, in my mind, to find guys who can put up 25 points on 25 shots. So if you're just a pure scorer and you're not that efficient with it, that's the kind of player that I definitely tend to have tumble down in my sort of mind and my personal
1: rankings for guys. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It, it's high volume scores are guys that, you know, unless they're doing it on like absurd efficiency, but just high volume scores, I, I really tend to steer away from because the the competition level is drastically different in the NBA. And I I just struggle to see the majority of these guys getting similar opportunities as, as they did in college in the NBA. So like, and I feel like that's pretty reflective, like in my ranking of like Cam Thomas, who, you know, is Oak Hill's all-time leading scorer, had an incredible scoring season at LSU, but you know, I have him as barely a first round pick. Um another one is just pure athletes. Um, I, I I tend to prefer more basketball players than athletes if you're just this elite athlete. Um I, I I get hesitant on fully buying in.
0: So sort of in a similar vein, what kinds of skill sets do you look for first in players? And for me, you know, as I mentioned, the big one is three-point shooting. I think that you can make up for a lot of other holes in your game if you can shoot really well from the outside. And for you, it certainly seems like, you know, maybe the highlight tapes will show guys who pop off the screen with crazy dunks, but maybe those aren't the kinds of players that you tend to value as highly. But what are the skill sets that you do tend to sort of look at first for
1: potential prospects? Yeah, so this may be cheating a little bit because it's more of an intangible and it's, you know, guys understanding of the game, their feel for the game, how they interpret you know, off ball defensive rotations? Do they make that extra pass? Do they attack space when it's given to them? Are they not just chucking up bad shots? It's kind of how they play within that team concept and with their, you know, teammates and how they kind of are able to connect everything. So, you know, guys like obviously Kate Cunningham, but also, you know, Moses Moody, you know, Franz Wagner, guys who the game just seems to naturally come to them and it flows through them. And they're just kind of out there making the right, plays even if it's not you know the highlight play or you know this alpha move where they're taking step back buzzer beaters, but instead they're making that extra pass to their teammate for you know the open corner three so it's more so less of a you know yes I love great shooters I love guys who are awesome point of attack defenders who have incredible handles but if they don't have that broader understanding of the game and what the right play is on both ends of the floor um you know that those are the areas that i'm really really keen in on right away
0: there's also a confidence element to this but i think there is sort of this sounds stupid but a tangible way to look at the intangibles which is when a guy gets the ball passed to him you know, what does he do? Does he make a move quickly? Does he sort of hesitate for a half second and look around the court and look for someone else to help him out? Does he take two jab steps and then dribble into a 20 footer? You know, it's like, if there are guys who are making quick decisions, Mm -hmm. oftentimes those are going to be guys who are making the right decisions because they know what they're supposed to do with the ball. Whereas, you know, if you see a guy who catches the ball and sort of hesitates for half a second, you know, that's a problem at the college level, but that's deadly at the
1: NBA level. Yeah, it, it, it's you. You everything happens within milliseconds, and you you have to be confident in what you're doing. If you hesitate, you die. You know, and that's a little extreme. But it's it, it it all it all stems from knowing what the right play is, and you know, really buying into the coaching philosophies and what is best for the team in that situation. And it's it's seeing the play two, three, four, five steps ahead of you know before the ball even gets to you
0: i wish that secondary assists were more of a thing because that i think is a really yeah. strong indicator as well of guys who are like okay, he's not the open man, but if I get it to the other side of the court, it's going to be a lot easier for him to hit the three-point shooter in the corner than me trying to throw it through two guys in the paint. You know, those are the kinds of plays that don't show up on the stat sheet, but are huge for a team, just guys who know that, you know, the next pass has to be there and this is where you go with the ball rather than, okay, I'm going to try and make the highlight play and throw it through four people and get it picked off.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I, th- I think it's NBA stats, who's kind of started tracking some more like potential assists because an assist is a, is a, a two person stat um, which is a step in the right direction. But I, I I do wish that there was a better way to track guys making those extra passes because and so much of, you know, NBA coverage now is just through pure numbers and being able to, track that kind of like you said with the secondary assist would be really beneficial to kind of measure guys understanding and actual you know playmaking
0: so let's move on now to talking about drafting philosophy when it comes to size or positions and i say size more than positions honestly because the position designations are getting blurrier and blurrier but Really, the big one, I think, for both of us is drafting bigs versus drafting wings or guards, and for me, if I see a seven-footer who I don't think has a chance to either be an all-star or make an all-defensive team, I'm thinking that they're dropping down towards the end of the first round, even if maybe they sort of have more quote-unquote tools than a wing or a guard ahead of them, just because... In the modern NBA, the big man position is so much more fungible, and if you're a rim-running athletic center who can't shoot, you can find those guys pretty much everywhere, and it's almost a waste to spend draft capital on a center who you don't think is going to be a star. And even in the case of centers who you think might be stars, you know, we've seen recently with guys like Julia Locafor is kind of the big one that, you know— Someone who could be incredibly successful at the college level as a post up big, just mauling people. If they can't do enough else at the NBA level, they're just going to get played off the court. And Julia Locafor went from third overall pick to backup slash third string center pretty quickly in his NBA career.
1: Yeah, I and mean, if I'm taking a a center a center early in the draft, there they have to have some unreal upside. And you know th- this year. Evan Mobley fits that bill where he isn't this traditional back to the basket, big man. He can, you know, hopefully eventually step out and be a reliable three-point shooter. He can defend any inch of the floor. So for me to really buy into big men early, they have to have that incredible upside because I, I'm more than happy to miss on a center early in the draft. But if, if I see this incredible wing, um or this wing who is maybe less productive than a center in college, but I see his ceiling as being much higher. Um, I, I think the NBA is very perimeter oriented now, obviously with all the three-point shooting and playmaking and expanded offenses. So if I can get one of those wings or guards or primary initiators, I I will 99 times out of a hundred, you know, roll the dice on them. And then just if I miss on them and A big that I passed on, you know, ends up having a better career. Oh well, because like you said, I think the replacement, the ability to replace a center or that position, the replacement level for that position, is much easier to come by than it is for the wings. It's kind of almost turned into like the running back position of of the NBA, where you can do it by committee and it's a lot more flexible in what you can kind of or who you can kind of slide into that position in your lineups.
0: I think the other thing, too, is that if you're a team that has a center as your best offensive player, they have to be otherworldly offensive players for that to even be a worthwhile proposition. And even then, they also have to be able to be playmakers, at least to some degree. And, you know, Evan Mobley, I think, has that, which is why we both have him in the top three of this draft. But if you're talking about, you know, centers who are really valuable contributors to their offenses, you're talking about, you know, Nikola Jokic and Karl-Anthony Towns and Bam Adebayo, you know— And Joel Embiid, obviously, as well. But guys who can score at a ridiculously high clip, but also facilitate and create plays to their teammates, at least to some degree. And, you know, with Bam, he's got the handoff game that he's really great at. Nikola Jokic, obviously, is a ridiculous passer, and that on top of his scoring talent. Karl-Anthony Towns is challenging Dirk Nowitzki for the best shooting big man of all time, and He and Joel Embiid both have gotten much, much better as playmakers and facilitators. That's just not a traditional kind of center skill set, and if you're getting a guy who's going to stand in the post and maybe beat his guy one-on-one every once in a while, but, you know, turn the ball over in the post almost as frequently as he's making passes out of it you know, that's a real problem for your offense if that's your number one guy. So if you're going to take a center that high in the draft, you have to be confident, I think, at least to some degree, that they're going to not only be able to create high-level offense for themselves, but also at a minimum, at least be able to make the easy kick out passes to their teammates.
1: Yeah, and it's just, it's so much harder to have that offense run through a center Um and minnesota started doing it more with the new coaching change denver's obviously you know perfected it but there are so few of those guys so you know when they do come along and you know the hope is that evan mobley is you know will eventually move his way into that type of player when they do come along those are the very few that i'm willing to take early but i think they're so rare and it as of now you know five years from now it. I'm guessing it'll be a completely different story but that that position has seen such an overhaul in the skill sets and it's you know usefulness really over the last you know five ten years that it it's so much more difficult to find those diamonds in the rough or those elite centers and finding just an average one that you can you know plug in and not have it harm your lineups is so much easier.
0: It's funny that you mentioned the potential trend towards big man playmaking prospects, because one of the other points that I really wanted to discuss is this sort of recent wave of bigger playmaker types. And, you know, LeBron James has been a 6'8 point guard for basically his entire career. But, you know, if you're just looking at the last few years, you're seeing Luka Doncic come onto the scene and be an absolute menace as a six foot eight playmaker. And both of our clear number one prospects in this class is Cade Cunningham, who, you know, again, is a six foot eight basically point guard. And that I think is really interesting for me in this class in terms of evaluating someone like Jalen Suggs, who's more of a traditional sized point guard. And you know, he's got better speed and better bounce than Cade Cunningham, but Cade also has four inches on him, which, you know, makes all types of playmaking easier. You know, Cade is going to be able to make a lot more reads out of the post, whereas Jalen Suggs is probably not going to find that many guys that he could put in the hole, especially early in his NBA career. So what are your thoughts sort of on the trend towards trying to make bigger sort of primary playmakers? And, you know, the recent wave that we've seen of guys who are bigger but tend to take on more playmaking responsibilities
1: and it it makes all the sense in the world really i mean the size size has always been king in the nba and you know historically it was always because it was you tried to get the ball as close to the hoop as possible and score and the bigger you were the easier it was to do that now as the game's expanding you know there was a lull where you know the quote-unquote big man was dead but you know that that's not true is the the immobile the unskilled the you know no non-shooting big men are dead it's versatility and size is really what every team is looking at now so you know the the every offense starts from the perimeter so if you have you know the I guess the the bigger your initiators are the bigger room for error you know they kind of have it it's easier to see over defenders. It's harder for defenders to contest shots. It's easier to bully defenders out of the way when you attack the rim. So, you know, if you can employ these bigger, you know, "quote unquote" bigger lineups with multiple six, 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 seven, six, eight, and up guys, it gives you so much more versatility on both ends of the floor. So, yes, it it, it makes your offense. More creative because playmaking is coming from you know almost every spot on the floor. Shooting is coming from all over the place. It's easier to space out the floor, but then that also flows directly over to defense where it's easier to switch. Or and you have multiple guys who can disrupt shots at the rim, and you don't have these obvious mismatches. So, and I I think we're going to see just this continued evolution of point, you know, quote-unquote point guards or primary initiators continuing to size up.
0: So we've touched on points sort of around this throughout the early part of this discussion, and I want to sort of put it out there on Front Street. I believe it was Sam Vicini who said this first, or the first place where I read it was reading Sam Vicini's work, so shout out to him. But I think the concept of a quote-unquote tweener used to be basically like a small wing type and you weren't sure whether they were a small forward or a power forward. And I think that there sort of still is a tweener concept, but that now it's more between power forward and center where, you know, in the modern NBA, there's so much four-out basketball that you almost require your power forward to at least be respectable from long range. Whereas, you know, the one in of the four out concept is almost always the center. And when you have that kind of idea, you get some really fascinating ways that teams play with that. And I think the most interesting to me has been the way that the Brooklyn Nets have used Bruce Brown this season where a lot of the times he's basically been a 6'3 center on offense, you know, as the sort of primary role man in the pick and roll scheme because when you have seven foot Kevin Durant on the court, you know, you can have Bruce Brown be your 6'3 offensive center. But what are your thoughts on that sort of power forward, center, tweener concept. And do you think that's a thing? Or do you think that the positional lines are just getting blurrier and blurrier to the point where that's not really a concept that's going to exist in, you know, a few years?
1: I mean, historically, it's absolutely been a thing and something I've never really understood why people were afraid of having, you know, Oh, this guy's a big, small forward. It's like, okay, cool. I have a bigger guy on the wing or, Oh, he's a smaller power forward, but he's quicker and can stretch the floor. Why is that a bad thing? Um, I I do still think it's there. Like you said, with the four and the five. Um, But I, I think there's less aversion to it. I think there's less fear of it. I think there's less hesitancy towards it where now it's, Oh, that's intriguing. If we take this guy or add him in, how does that shape what we can do And here? You know, here's a five to 10 minutes a game where we can do something completely different that changes how the other team, you know, approaches us or can attack us. So I do think it's still a thing, but I don't think it's, you know, a negative thing anymore, if that makes sense, where, you know, that this, there's more, you know, I, I, I guess there's more creativity now, or more willingness to change or try different things and if you're just constantly trying to copy other teams, you know you're never going to differentiate yourself. You're never going to set yourself ahead of everyone else. But by bringing in, you know, at least one or two of you know these quote unquote tweeners, and they provide different looks. And I think it's good for teams to be able to have, you know, at least a couple spells in every game where they can ha- throw out these weird looks that really throws off their opponent and provides different looks and can create a lot of mismatches in different ways.
0: I think it's more of a trend sort of away from traditional positions and more of a trend towards the concept of skill sets, where it's like, you want to have four guys in the starting lineup who can shoot. You want to have one guy who's a really good roller to the rim. You want to have one primary initiator. You want to have one guy who's responsible for setting most of the screens. And I think the more teams trend away from, okay you know, the screen setter is the seven-foot big man, the primary initiator is the six-foot-two point guard, and more towards, okay, these are the skills that we need out there on the floor. Who are the players that can fill those skill sets? I think that's, you know, kind of the idea that's blurring these positional lines, is that it's more important to just have these certain skill sets on the floor rather than a specific player doing a specific thing.
1: Yeah, it's... it's what you can do and the size doesn't matter as much unless you know you're completely immobile or you're just drastically too small obviously the outliers are still applicable but it's versatility and what you're able to do and then fitting that skill set into your lineup to make sure that you don't have any glaring holes where you know it's like okay well now we have five awesome passers out there but none of them can shoot this is an issue or you know we have a bunch of shooting guards out there who can light it up, but they're all seven inches shorter and can't get a rebound to save their life. So, you know, I the the way the Nuggets operate is always fascinating to me with how they have you know their seven foot center bringing the ball up and initiating from the high post, and guys cutting and screening off of that. The way that the Warriors have always used Steph Curry as a screener and having you know Draymond Green initiate out of the post, it, it's just really creative and. It, it's versatility and creative coaching, and willingness to do things differently than you know the traditional norms, are what leads to these successful teams.
0: So let's talk quickly about projection and skill set development. And you know, I talked earlier about how I really, really value three point shooting, especially in the modern NBA, and that leads to I think a really critical question that. It certainly seems like the outcome of this looks a little different now than it did even a couple of years ago, but how easy is it to build or rebuild a jump shot? Because, you know, having seen Lonzo Ball go from rookie year Lonzo Ball to this year Lonzo Ball, and having seen Tyrese Halliburton succeed with his unorthodox, but certainly successful jump shot, and having seen Jaron Jackson Jr. do the same thing— You know, how easy is it for these guys to get to the point where they can go from a non-shooter type, like, say, early career Brook Lopez to, you know, a long-range shooter, like, late career Brook Lopez? And that's unfair because he was always good from the mid-range, but it is kind of staggering to just look at his three-point attempts over the course of his career versus
1: the last, like, three years or so. I definitely think it's becoming easier and easier, and and that's something that I've struggled with is kind of projecting guys, improving their shooting. And I think a reason that's, that, you know, that, that's changing where, you know, non-shooters are no longer just boxed into, you know, forever being non-shooters, you know, when, when I was growing up, there was always this talk about, this is, you know, the, the one standard shooting form that everyone should have. And you, everyone should model their form like this. And, Now there's much less of that where it's completely overhauling shooting forms and there's still some of it, but it's lesser and it's, you know, it's not these complete overhaul projects anymore. Now it's okay. Let's look at how you shoot. What's comfortable for you. What do you do and how can we refine on the margins? So it's, you know, like you said, Tyrese Halliburton and Jaron Jackson, they're not these normal, traditional over the head releases it's okay so this is how you shoot you're good at it you're comfortable with this but if we just refine your elbow placement here if we refine you know your hand placement on the ball here just a little bit it'll boost your percentages by this amount so i definitely think that the the change in thinking of there is one standard shooting form to let's improve on the margins, let's refine these little things here and there, is really, really going to improve prospect's ability to develop from that complete non-shooter into, you know, league average or acceptable or you know can't just be completely left alone.
0: That's a great point. And you know, I think really the big thing there is so much of shooting is confidence. And if you're taking a guy and just completely rebuilding his jump shot from the ground up, you know, there's almost certainly going to be a long time where it's just days of putting up hundreds of shots in the gym and trying to get better, trying to get better, trying to get better. Whereas, you know, if you start with, okay, you've got a good base of your jump shot that you hit pretty frequently, but, you know, you flare out your elbow a little bit too much, you know, maybe keep it in a little bit more, then you get more guys with shots that, you know, look non-traditional, but they're confident that they're going to go in because, oh, I'm shooting the same way I've been for the last 10 years. I just brought my elbow in a little bit and it helped improve my percentages rather than, oh, shoot, I've got to entirely change the way I shoot,
1: you know, from the ground up. Yeah. And just from like a biomechanical standpoint, it's easier on the body. It doesn't feel as weird. And just like that, that sense of comfort combined with just a minor change and an improvement in results can just do wonders psychologically.
0: So speaking of easier on the body, something else I sort of wanted to talk about is the concept of putting on strength. And this has been a big one for me, just watching De'Aaron Fox from his rookie year till now, going from toothpick ankles to actually, you know, having some strength on his body and hoping for the same from Tyrese Halliburton. On the flip side, you know, you have guys like Brandon Ingram that never seem to be able to put on any sort of weight. And I don't know, it's kind of easy in some sense to sort of see, okay, he's got broad shoulders, so he's probably going to be able to put on more weight once he's in an NBA strength training program. But it is really interesting to me to sort of think about the concept that there are some guys that just aren't going to get bigger. And, you know, when you're talking about being able to drive in the lane and take contact, that's a really important thing to be able to do. And it's funny to sort of think about the idea, you know, evaluating, is he skinny because he's a 19-year-old who's had one year in college and hasn't really been in much of a weight training program? Or is he skinny because he just doesn't
1: have the kind of frame that's going to put on weight? So one of my biggest pet peeves is always the pushback on people labeling, you know, strength as a weakness. And I, I I get why people push back on us because, oh, this kid's a teenager. You know, how, where did you not get stronger as you grew up? And it's like, yes, obviously I expect this guy to get stronger, but where he is right now, it, he's, it's a real issue. And just because I expect it to improve doesn't mean that it isn't an issue today. And like you said, not all of those guys are able to fix that. Um, You know, Carl Anthony Towns is one that I always think of because when he was younger, his lower body was super weak and he couldn't move guys in the post. He was easily moved in the post. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten much stronger down there. Andrew Wiggins is a guy whose body hasn't drastically kind of changed or really gotten much, you know, bigger and then he was in college um so there's always going to be a natural growth and improvement in strength but for some of these guys it it can be a real issue and guys with you know skinnier or skinnier frames and lankier frames really kind of concern me because if they do overdo it with adding on muscle and weight it can really really lead to injury issues, especially in big man where, you know, I, I think that was one of the issues with Joel Embiid early in his career where he added just a ton of weight right away. And then, you know, he kept having those those issues with his feet and, you know, lower body injuries with skinny big men who added a drastic amount of weight early on in their career, I think is is a really dangerous proposition.
0: So let's move on now to talking about the sort of baseline production, and how important that is in terms of your evaluation. So for me, and this is something that we've brought up with one prospect in particular that we've disagreed on, Alper and Shangun. but I tend to really value production and stats in non-NCAA leagues, and the EuroLeague in particular, but also the NBL to a certain extent, The way I see it is if you're able to be productive in a professional league overseas at the age where you're likely to be drafted into the NBA, you know, especially if you're a teenager doing that kind of thing, but... You know, even if you're a 20, 21-year-old player who's putting up really great stats in EuroLeague and the NBL, to me, that matters a lot more than really great production in the NCAA, just because the average level of competition that you're facing night in, night out in a professional league is just so much higher than going up against even the best of college athletes.
1: It's, it. it I don't know, I, I, I'm i always on the fence with this, because the level of opportunities is so different in in European basketball or in international, but international basketball, where it's really hard for young, young guys to get legitimate minutes and opportunities, which, you know, really makes what Luca did all more incredible. But, you know, you look at guys like Leandro Balmaro, who's, you know, only gets a couple minutes a game. Danny of deal last year only got a few minutes a game where it's, I I think it's the production is more legitimate over overseas. I just struggle with, I I, I prefer to still look at the process of how they're getting to those numbers or, you know, not getting to those numbers. Because when you go back and watch Alexei Pokashevsky film, you know, and he's playing against guys who are wider than they are tall and it's third division Greek basketball. So a lot of the stuff that he's doing is, really impressive and incredible, but it's such a lower level of competition than, you know, than the the the, the Spanish league or, you know, something like that. So I, I think production can be leaned on and really, I think you can really buy into it from overseas, but I, I think you really, really have to take into account what level of competition they're going against and how much of a role are they actually being given. So, we've
0: had the great free throw debate already on this podcast and, you know, the importance of free throw numbers sort of in evaluating a prospect's shooting touch, but I want to go back to that well one more time and sort of talk (laughs) about the importance of shooting numbers and... For me, the standout to this will always be Derek Williams, who had that one college season shooting forty percent on a pretty small volume of three point attempts and then never came close to that again in the n b a and now he's actually having a really, really successful career over in Europe, but you know he wasn't quite the number two prospect in the draft that maybe some people were considering over Kyrie in that particular draft evaluation so I guess that's sort of where it comes into play for me again. And I don't want to rehash too much, but... I do think it's important when you're looking at shooting numbers to not just look at the percentages, but also look at the sample size. Because, you know, if you hit eight of 23 pointers, I don't think that it's fair to call you a 40% three-point shooter. And on the flip side, you know, if you're hitting 80% on 200 free throw attempts, I think I have more confidence in a player's touch than I would if they have, you know, a
1: 16 for 43-point shooting season yeah so the the main things that i i try and look at with shooting are volume types of shots um floaters and free throw because and the 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 latter two give you you know generally give you a good sense of a player's touch um my my, my pushback on the relying just on free throw numbers has always been not that you know it shouldn't be used but it's the people who are oh well he's a good free throw shooter he'll be an awesome three-point shooter it's like well not necessarily or uh oh, he's not an awesome free, free throw shooter you know but his 40 percent three-pointers on 200 attempts is a fluke it's like well yeah i mean that 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 doesn't make sense either so it it's being able to Gel all of that together, and you know you really use context because if a guy's you know like Davion Mitchell, I I think he will be a good three point shooter. And yes, he he wasn't great from the free throw line. Yes, he wasn't historically great from three, but he he saw steady improvement over his career. And the types of shots that he was taking is a myriad of opportunities: is off screens, his movement, it was off the dribble, his step backs, and on high volume so when a guy's doing that I, I tend to buy in with you know a guy like jaden springer i i love the mechanics but he only shot you know 1.8 threes a game so i i don't think he's the 44% three point shooter that his numbers say he is but he also has a really good free throw percentage in the 80 over 80% so i do think that he will eventually get there with volume so you know it's not just taking one of those things and being like oh Great free throw shooter. He's going to be awesome from three. Or, oh, can't shoot free throws. He's going to suck. It's being able to piece those all together and, you know, use context.
0: I think part of the problem is a lot of the time there's the concept of stats versus the eye test. And it shouldn't be stats versus the eye test. It should be stats and the eye test, right? You know, it's there are. And yeah, it's like there are some things where, okay, you know, he looks like he's got a pretty good three-point shot, but oh boy, he's only shooting 27%. That's not great. You know, you have to be able to sort of look at both things and both methods of evaluation are going to bias you in one direction if you only use one and not the other. And, you know, that sort of leads into the next point that I wanted to touch on, which is the importance of blocks and steals in evaluating players on defense. And, You know, the thing for me there is you're going to get some guys who, and I don't want to call anyone out, but I'm going to call out Russell Westbrook, you know, you can get really great steal numbers by just gambling and gambling and gambling on every play, but on the flip side... A steal is an incredibly valuable defensive play. And, you know, you mentioned Davion Mitchell on the shooting front, but one of the things that I always thought was great about Davion Mitchell as a prospect is that he had one of the highest steal rates. And at one point, he had the highest steal percentage in the country. And if you're a guy who can play great defense and also strip the ball from guys and create possessions for your teams, and you know, blocks aren't a hundred percent change of possession like a steal is by definition, but you know, a block is turning a shot that has a blank percentage of going in into a zero percent chance of going in. So even though I think just looking at, you know, steals and blocks as a box score stat doesn't necessarily tell the tale of defense. Steal rates historically have translated to the NBA better than almost any other statistical category. So, for me, that is something that I look at when evaluating a prospect on defense. You know, if they're getting a lot of steals, and then I'm seeing on film, oh, wow, they're getting these steals because they're just an absolute pest, versus, okay, they're getting all these steals because they're taking wild gambles, and 10% of the time they pay off, and 90% of the time it's a wide open lane for their guy. What are your thoughts on, you know, blocks and steals in particular, but really any sort of defensive stats in terms of evaluating prospects?
1: Defensive stats, I tend to almost completely ignore, which, you know, probably isn't the right approach. And, you know, like you said, with those rates, you know, historically translating pretty well, I, I just, I, I struggle to, I, I, I think judging or pers- projecting a guy's defensive impact i think the eye test and that is just so 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 incredibly important um I, I do think there are numbers out there that are useful and you can look at but you know I, I i still think the vast majority of your of a projection of you know a scouting process on a player's defense has to be done through the eye test because there are so many college players who You know, can average, you know, five blocks a game. And that's because they're chasing every single shot around the rim. And that's not a good process. You shouldn't be chasing every single shot around the rim. If you rotate on a guy and then you block it, awesome. But I think it's, it's the, I care so much about the process on that end where, okay, was this, was this a measured gamble jumping that passing lane? Was this a weak side block where, you know you didn't just leave your guy and chase an unblockable shot and then your guy got an easy tip and you know like a guy like Charles Bassey who I'm really low on because I think all of or the vast majority of his rim protection is him just chasing block opportunities um you know you look at Anthony Edwards this season I and mean, he had a streak of like 30-ish games where he had of consecutive steals and that's incredible on the surface but and a lot of those did turn into fast break points. But in the grand scheme of things, Anthony Edwards was a really bad defender this year and missed rotations and would lose his guy through screens and would get caught ball watching. So I, I think those numbers can be a piece of the puzzle, but I think the majority of the puzzle has to be done with high test and you know, really examining how a guy is processing all of his decisions on that end of the floor.
0: All right. Now we get to the part of the podcast that Tyler has been waiting for since we decided to do the draft philosophy episode. Let's talk about footwork, Tyler, and let's start with footwork on the offensive end and evaluating that in prospects.
1: Oh my God. I love footwork. Everything you do starts from the base and it's all about your footwork. If you have crap footwork, you're going to be a bad defender. You're not going to be a good shooter. You're not going to be a good post player. Everything you do starts with the, from your feet and I, I i've been pretty low on Sangoon, but he has incredible post footwork it's it's so much fun to watch and it is the key for all of these guys how balanced they are i i highly recommend people watching treyman highlight tapes because all of his step backs he's perfectly balanced it allows him to get that space and then cross back over and you know hit hit another step back and if he had bad footwork not only would he not be able to make that dribble move but when he you know once he got to that spot his base of his shot would be completely thrown off and his shot wouldn't be as reliable as it is so the the obvious um kind of area that you know we see on offense for footwork is post-ups where you know we we get incredible dream shakes or back downs and guys stepping through with crab dribbles and fakes over each shoulder. Um, but we're also seeing it more, more important on, you know, step backs and dribble creation and guys like Kyrie getting into the rim and being able to finish, you know, in situations that he shouldn't be because he has this incredible balance and this off timing with how to elevate off of the wrong foot Uh, We we see it a lot with yoke edge elevating off the wrong foot with these post-up fadeaways. So it's just everything starts from there. If you have bad footwork, you're going to be a liability.
0: You know, it's funny because I've heard so much conversation recently about sort of the death of the post player. And I think that's absolutely the wrong way of looking at it, because I think really what it is, is the death of the seven foot pure post-up player. But if you've got great footwork, you know, I think and you brought this up in a recent episode, but Chris Middleton is an exceptional example of this. You know, he's not the best athlete in the world and he's a really good three point shooter, but he does a lot of his damage in the mid range. And part of that is if you get a seismic match on Chris Middleton, he's going to find his way into the post on you. And, you know, either he's going to work around you to the rim or he's going to work his way into a fade away or a step back. But The fact that he's got such exceptional balance and footwork means that he can get the kinds of post-ups that are really helpful to a team, you know, rather than just throwing the ball to the big guy on the block and saying, okay, take 10 possessions and see if you can score on three of them, a la JaVale McGee and Andre Drummond post-ups. You know, If you can get a size mismatch and you're a bigger wing, having great footwork can be the difference between you being the kind of player who's going to pass out of those opportunities versus you being the kind of player that's just going to feast anytime you get a post-op opportunity on a smaller guy.
1: I I love that you brought up Chris Middleton. And, you know, just a a great example of, you know, his incredible footwork is that game-winning shot he hit against the Heat in game one, where he essentially doesn't square his body up to the rim until he's already, you know, After he's elevated and he's able to do that because of his footwork and his shot preparation and how he got into his shot and got to his spot and if he didn't have that footwork if he didn't have that balance there's zero percent chance he's making that shot so it's just you know the offensive footwork is always highlighted on you know awesome post-up moves or you know like an Andrew Wiggins spin move on a drive, you know, those flashy plays, but the real the the more subtle aspects of it are shot preparation and guys, you know, look look at all of the the elite level shooters, their their footwork and how they get into their shot and elevate into their shot is always perfect.
0: Now let's talk about footwork on the defensive end, and I think defensive footwork is probably more subtle than offensive footwork. But really for me, the thing I look at with defensive footwork is I get really worried when I see guys who are flat footed who can't, you know, move quickly in a defensive stance. And the kinds of players that, you know, aren't flat footed are the kinds of players that I have a lot more confidence in their sort of defensive growth. You know, a lot of defense is understanding the scheme that you're operating in and, you know, not taking crazy gambles and those sorts of obvious things. But Ultimately, if your defensive base is bad, it's so much easier to blow
1: by you on the defensive end. Yeah, I mean the 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 easiest place to kind of start when looking for defensive footwork is perimeter defenders, and are are they sliding their feet or are they you know crossing them over? And if a guy's crossing, he's going to be unbalanced, and it probably isn't a high level defender. When you watch Davion Mitchell his feet are always sliding. They're incredibly quick. He's always on his toes and he's always beating his opponent essentially to the spot before the ball handler even gets there. Um, When you talk about big men, it's incredibly important because the, you know, they're, as they age into the NBA, they're going to be drawn away from the rim so much more frequently. If they have that bad footwork, they're going to be taken advantage of over and over and over again so you know when when you look at Evan Mobley he can cover so much ground and he moves his feet incredibly well on the perimeter which allows him to defend multiple positions and not be a liability when he does get switched and you know that's one of the things that worries me with a guy like Alperin Sangoon where he is so heavy-footed and completely lost in space and he can't keep up with anyone so I think defensively he has a long way to go Despite you know whatever his production is impressive, however impressive his production has been, so it's it's similar to offense where it's it gives you that balance, it gives you that base, and it if you don't have it you're you're gonna get cooked and you know if you have incredible footwork, you at least have a chance, even if your instincts aren't good, even if you aren't this incredible athlete, obviously elite athletes make up for it. But average athletes, that they have to have that sound, consistent, reliable footwork where they're not crossing, they're not overextending, they're keeping that solid, consistent base.
0: If you have really great footwork on both ends, that gives you such a high floor. You know, even if you're not a great athlete, you'll be able to be something defensively you know you won't be as much of a liability as you know maybe a better athlete with worse footwork and you know similarly on the offensive end if you at least have good footwork and good balance on your shots you know you're going to be able to get more opportunities whereas someone who's an elite athlete who can't you know take advantage of good footwork you know maybe their opportunities to blow by guys aren't as great you know on the flip side If you've got really, really great footwork and you're this ridiculous athlete, you're Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant.
1: Yeah. And I mean, whenever you see these clips of guys getting, you know, their ankles broken, it's always because their footwork is off. They're turning their hips and crossing their feet. And then, you know, the ball handler is hitting them with a crossover and their balance is completely thrown off. And. You know, their feet are going one way, but they want to go the other. So, you know, just on a base level, if you don't want to get shown up on defense, have good footwork.
0: Let's talk about prospect age now. And this, I think, is a point on which both of us agree very heartily and agree certainly in a way that's greater than I think most draft evaluators in the NBA and out of the NBA. And that's sort of the debate between potential versus production. It feels like every year there are a few older players, you know, 22, 23-year-old guys who fall in the draft because these evaluators say, oh, well, he's already 22, 23, he's hit his ceiling, and... A, I don't think that's entirely fair because I think there's development at the NBA level that happens even if you enter the NBA at 25, that, you know, a 25-year-old rookie, certainly at least on the defensive end, has room to grow in the NBA just as they get used to various schemes. But there's such a sort of push for drafting these younger players you know more and more 19 year olds at the top of the draft and soon when we start getting high school players again which i think we're going to get high school players in the draft within the next three years it certainly seems like you know these evaluators are saying oh well he's only 18 he's only 19 he's got so much more room to grow and I think that leads to a lot of evaluators basically saying, well, you know, let's take the younger guy, he's got so much more room to grow, and ignoring the fact that, well, hey, this 22-year-old player is actually good right now and can contribute right now. And, you know, they tend to fall in the draft because maybe they don't have that same kind of ridiculous upside, but— At a certain point, if you know that a guy is going to be productive and he's on the board at 27, you know, the odds of the 27th pick being a productive player are so low that if you have that kind of confidence in a guy, you know, you should take him. And I'll admit that burned me big time with Jacob Evans, who I was very high on. But, you know, for the most part, if you've got a guy in college who maybe is on the older side, but has shown that he has a clear skill set that can translate to the NBA into a productive role, I think those players always fall way
1: further than they should. Yeah, and I mean, part of that is because, you know, it's not as sexy to take the 22-year-old who has, you know, who can improve 10 more percent than an 18-year-old who could improve 80%. Um, You know, it's always that the unknown is sexier and more intriguing than the known um and the 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 age dispute or whatever um has always kind of irritated me because i you know if i'm drafting a guy i want him to be good and i you know i i understand you know as a, the more i do this the better i've kind of gotten it being less pigeonholed into this guy's good right now let me just take him and ignoring what you know player b could potentially be um but i i think the the issue with the age is that it's so incredibly situational dependent where if i'm a top if i'm a team picking in the top 10 it's probably because i completely suck and you know i i need to hit a home run on this draft pick and if i need to hit a home run i'm probably not going to do it with a 22 year old you know, it's just the the odds of you know age development is I'm probably not going to hit a superstar on this senior, but I do have that chance with this 19 year old. It's obviously a higher bust rate, our uh, bust percentage, or likelihood, but it's one that I kind of got to take because if I do take this 22 year old, he will probably help contribute to winning basketball right away, but they probably won't get me out of that, off that treadmill of mediocrity, um, you know, they'll improve us maybe in the margins, but they won't improve us in the big picture. So I, I do think that the age thing gets way overblown big picture, but situationally, I, I think it's really important based on where teams are.
0: So that actually transitions perfectly into our next discussion topic, which is draft philosophy by draft range. And You know, I think the big one there is sort of what you mentioned, which is there is a big difference, I think, in the philosophy that teams should have when they're drafting, you know, in the 1-10 to range or in the lottery versus, you know, towards the middle of the first round or into the second round. And for me, if I'm taking a prospect in the top 10... I better have some hope that they could become an all-star one day. And, you know, if that means that I'm taking the 19-year-old with crazy upside and crazy bust potential over the 22-year-old who's shown solid production and shown that they can be a solid role player at the NBA level, that's, I think, the kind of swing that you have to take in the top 10 But if you're looking, you know, at the 15 to 25 range, that I think is where you really got to look at it and say, all right, historically, the percentage of players who are drafted with the 15th overall pick who even make it to a second long-term contract in the NBA is pretty slim. And if I'm a team picking at 15, you know, I'm at the bottom of the playoff picture. And, you know, granted, that can be a bit different depending on the situation, but, If I'm, say, the Memphis Grizzlies picking at 16th in the upcoming draft, I've got my superstar, your potential superstar in John Morant, and Jaron Jackson Jr. has shown flashes of being an all-star level potential player. Maybe I do just want to take the guy at 16 who I know is going to be a productive three-point shooter with solid defense as opposed to being like, okay, you know, I'm going to take the wild home run swing. Now, on the flip side... You could also get an 8th seed like the Washington Wizards, who basically got into the 8th seed because they have Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook playing out of their minds, and the rest of the team, you know, they have Rui Hachimura and Denny Abdia, both of whom I think can be pretty solid players, but... They don't have that other superstar alongside Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal. So, you know, for an older playoff team like the Wizards, I think it makes a lot more sense to sort of take a home run swing on that draft pick because, you know, you're not waiting for the upside, right? You've hit the upside and now you've just got to get someone else who's got the chance of being a superstar level player.
1: Yeah, and it's so, it's so team dependent on, and, you know, like, like I said earlier, it, context is key. And I, I do think that, that top 10 range is pretty much where I'm just, hey, I'm taking this home run swing. This guy's got to pan out and be a superstar. If we, if he's not, oh, well, I'm going to get fired anyways. So, so be <laughs> it. Um, and, you know, I want to take that chance. If I'm like this fringe playoff team or low end of the playoffs, and, you know, I have this one clear, hole where I need that second guard who can defend and knock down threes then you know I'd be more willing to take that older guy like a Davion Mitchell or Corey Kispert who I know can immediately fill this role and fill it at a high level so you know if I'm Golden State at you know they're at like pick 14 those would be the guys I'm more targeting instead of you know, and it's because I have my core locked down. I have my, the core of my team locked down and I need to improve on the margins. Um, You know, if you're picking at, if I'm picking at the very end of the first round and, you know, say I'm a team like Denver, where I have my, you know, six through or my my one through seven pretty much locked up in my rotation, then like in that case, then maybe I'll take a a real home run swing on a guy who may need to be a little more of a developmental project, but in three years from now, he could be this uh you know, he could fill that starter role. Um so I, I think it's it's so team dependent on where they are, what their roster is looking like. Um, you know, if you have the superstar with one year left on their contract, I'm probably gonna try and take a bigger home run swing because I'm not as confident, you know, and in, in that's assuming that they may be leaving. So it, it's, it's very, it varies so much team by team, but generally early on, it's probably because I suck. So I want to take that, that big swing to try and get that superstar. All
0: right. So before we wrap up, let's just talk quickly about some of our hits and misses. So for the record, I haven't done a formal big board until this year. And spoiler alert, we will be discussing my big board next week, and Tyler has promised to mock it relentlessly, so definitely be on the lookout for that. But with hits and misses, the kinds of prospects that I tend to really believe in, you know, I've mentioned earlier that I think that being productive at an incredibly young age in a non-NBA professional league is really important. And as painful as this is for me to admit, as a Kings fan, I thought that Luka Doncic was the Clear number one choice in his draft class. And I was very right about that, as painful as that's been. On the flip side, you know, as I mentioned, I tend to not believe in guys who I think are only scorers and inefficient scorers and particularly inefficient mid-range scorers and so I was much lower on Jason Tatum than him being the 3rd overall pick in his draft and now it seems like he's probably going to be the best player in his draft so that was a clear miss for me but you've been doing more formal big boards for a while so give me some of your hits and misses in terms of prospects in recent years
1: so probably one of the biggest misses I've had is Kyrie Thomas um I I, mean, I think I had him at like thirteen. Um, and that has not panned out too well, unfortunately. Although this year he did average sixteen points, five assists, almost two steals. So, you know, don't don't go look at the sample size, but <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe I wasn't so wrong on that. Still uh, time. There's still time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, he he's just someone who just never panned out at all. Uh one of the biggest hits that i had those mikhail bridges um i i think i had him at four or five in his class he was just a guy that i was so confident would be an awesome defender and a good shooter and that's exactly what he's been um and you know that kind of you know that's almost a full circle back to the, our talk at the beginning where i i'm a, always tend to be really high on on these two-way versatile high level role players um so you know, maybe he won't end up being the third or fourth best prospect or best player from his draft. Like I had him ranked, but I, I think he's vastly overperformed what the the consensus kind of had him as.
0: All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap things up?
1: Uh, Evan Mobley's scouting report came out last week on hashtag basketball.com. Go check it out. Uh, hopefully, this week I'm aiming to get Jalen Green and Jonathan Kamingo done. Uh, so, hopefully, within the next week, those will be published as well. And we'll probably have something on Anthony Edwards' roller coaster ride defense um, uh, over on Canis Hoopas at some point in the next week or so.
0: All right, well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can check out his draft profiles on hashtagbasketball.com, as he mentioned, and also be on the lookout for that upcoming Canis Hoopas piece. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N and of course you can be on the lookout for the episode next week where Tyler takes a skewer through my first big board so i would ask him to be kind but i know he won't and you know he's kind of justified in no that so Yeah, there we go. (laughs) So be on the lookout for that next week. But in the meantime, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated. And if you have any feedback on the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. Tyler, I did not screw up the outro this time, so I'm sure that just sticks in your craw. Not not thrilled about it. But in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. (laughs)